Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. Someone was always going to write a biography of Bryce Courtney, although he professed not to want one. But I reckon he would have been pretty pleased if he'd known that the person to accomplish the task would be his second wife, Christine G. Christine's approach to Bryce Courtney's storyteller brings a whole new dimension to the idea of the authorised biography. She's so close to her subject, whom she clearly adored, that no objectivity is possible, and that is made clear from the get-go. Her book is partly a memoir of their romantic relationship, but she does an excellent job of telling the story of before they met, from Bryce's very modest background in South Africa as an illegitimate child, brought up by a black nanny and by his grandfather, who gave him a love of gardening. After a near-fatal time working in copper mines, Courtney made a leap into advertising and from there into fiction at the age of 53, becoming an international bestseller with The Power of One, in 1989. He wrote 21 books in 23 years, selling 20 million copies in his lifetime and maintained a punishing schedule of writing and running. Christine G had a very successful career in adventure travel and marketing, as well as being the former Royal Nepalese Honorary Consul in Australia before she became Bryce's publicist, researcher and wife. During this conversation, you will hear Christine refer to Benita, Bryce's first wife, and to his publisher at Penguin, Bob Sessions. I talked to Christine via Zoom at her home in Sydney. You are an unusual biographer. You were Bryce Courtney's researcher, his publicist, and then subsequently his wife. Now you're his biographer. So this is in no way an unauthorized biography. This is not so much an authorized biography as a very subjective portrait. So given all of that, how on earth did you go about telling this story? I really, Caroline, had to work it out as I went along, having not written a book before, let alone a biography. But I found when I was writing about the years that we were together, it kind of poured out of me. The difficult bit was the decades when we weren't together and deciding, firstly, working out what actually happened and then deciding, you know, where to go to find the material I needed. And then when I wrote the initial draft... I knew it wasn't quite right, so I essentially rewrote the manuscript after I submitted it on February 8 this year. So would I be right in thinking from what you've just said, given that you say that the part which was about your life together, which is more of a memoir in a way than a biography, did you write that bit first because it poured out of you and then go back to the beginning of Bryce's life? I wrote part of it first. I wrote our first chapter about how Bryce and I met, almost as an exercise because you may remember I was writing a memoir of my own little life, which is is going to be called Annapurna Sunrise, and I'd written about 30% of that. So one day I just sort of wrote this little chapter about how Bryce and I had first met, and I sent it to a girlfriend and she said, this is really lovely, you should keep going. And I thought, oh, no, I'm not keeping on going, Uh, no way. Bryce never wanted a biography. But then I actually went back and started finding a little bit more about his life. And I then started the beginning of his life. But the breakthrough came when I found the letters. Right. So what letters are those? 
In June 2020, I was in my garage in the eastern suburbs and I found this battered old cardboard box and it had all these letters in it. I'd never seen them. I thought they were just business letters or something. I came close to throwing them out. Then I looked at one and it was written to his mother and I took them upstairs. There were 141 and they were like a diary of his life. And you know when you get that sneaking feeling when you don't want to do something but you think maybe you should? And I began to think, oh, maybe I can have a go at writing Bryce's life story, but I thought, don't worry, no one else will read it. Just have, see how you go and at least you'll have a lovely story of Bryce's life to present to his three grandchildren who were relatively young when Bryce passed away in 2012. So you say that Bryce didn't want anyone to write his biography, but I get the impression that he knew that someone would eventually. I mean, obviously, he couldn't have known it would be you, but he did know that his life story was worth telling because it's such a fantastic kind of rags to riches, hard scrabble story, particularly the beginning, obviously. And then from that very, very modest, humble background in South Africa, illegitimate to fame and success. I mean, he did know it was going to happen. I think he thought someone would want to do it. Did he know it was going to happen? I'm really not sure. Before he passed away, at least two people really pushed hard to come down with to see us in Canberra and to interview Bryce. One person, in fact, did interview Bryce for some interviews that are now on YouTube, Roger Maynard, who had written many books but he used to always fob us off when we'd talk about it and his penguin later told me they'd begged him to write one and he'd always quote, you know, Morris West who said, well, there's only one problem with the biography, I don't much care for the central character or he'd say to me, darling, what would be interesting about it? And he'd say, darling, my great literary hero was Dickens and he would quote him who said something along the lines of I want to, I want to be remembered for my published works. Right. Well, let let me ask you this. In that fantastic cache of letters, which of course is a every biographer dreams of finding a battered box of letters that are revealing in the way that you describe, what was the favourite thing that you found out about Bryce while you were writing this book? Well, the fact that he nearly died as a baby, the real the rigours of his childhood was even worse than I really understood and to hear it and read it in his voice from childhood right through was very heart-wrenching. almost felt guilty, you know, that I hadn't pressed him more about that because he didn't talk about it hardly at all, although he did in the last day or so before he passed away. He suddenly had this urgent sense of wanting to pour it all out. He told me to go and get a notebook and I frantically took down notes. But, you know, I didn't realise that he'd nearly been blown up in the mines. I didn't realise how tough it was. In London, I mean, we always have this lovely idea of being in London studying journalism. Wouldn't we all love that? But, you know, it was 10 years after the war. He had no money. It was tough. And Bryce was sick a lot of the time as a child and when he was there. And I think as well also the unimaginable loss of his son Damon, reading the letters about that, aside from what he wrote in April Fool's Day, his only work of nonfiction, just had me in tears. I mean, he really suffered a lot of slings and arrows in his life, but he had that unfailing positivity and resilience and a capacity to compartmentalise things in order to carry on. 
Absolutely. It, it is remarkable, his kind of resilience and stamina and grit and stubborn will and self-discipline in terms of achieving a goal. So let's go right back to the beginning and that very, very hard scrabble childhood. Tell us a little bit about Bryce's family, his origins, and who brought him up? Well, Bryce was born illegitimately to more Jessamine Greer on August 14, 1933. He had an older sister, Rosemary, and they were the children of Arthur Cunningham Ryder, who they later discovered when they were 15, when Patty, his mother, finally told them who their father was, was uh, he was married and had six children. They didn't know that these children were their half-siblings until 1991 when Bryce placed an advertisement in the South African papers and they came out of the woodwork. And remember in those days, if you were a woman in South Africa and you were poor, there was no social welfare, she was alone. She had to work, so she put the kids in and out of boarding houses, hostels, pound them off to friends and relatives now and then because she had no one to mind them. And sometimes she just left them alone in the little flat upstairs from a shop she might have been working in. She had very bad nerves. Bryce wondered if she wasn't in fact suffering from bipolar disorder. She was sick a lot of the time. She had a stroke. She had a very bad appendicitis. She had very, you know, bad nerves. She got into the clutches of a charismatic religion, which his half-sibling suggested in a letter changed her, the way she dealt with things. There was a lot of time when they, the kids were separated, so Bryce had a lot of those feelings that are common with children in institutions, of feeling abandoned, feeling shame, loneliness, and there was a lot of brutality. You can only imagine what it was like. And he was often in Africana areas, and because he spoke English, that only reminded them all of the Boer War. So he was regularly beaten up. So very early, he had to grow up fast. And he also felt responsible for his mother because there was no father figure really in their lives. So as soon as he could earn a few pennies, he was helping out his mother. And he did that for the rest of his life. But he felt ambivalent towards her, I think, which is understandable. He was very dutiful and he loved her. But I don't feel that... He ever said that he had a loving relationship with his mother, although his sister saw the, the relationship with her mother very differently. So what about his grandparents? Because they play quite an important role in this story, don't they? Yes. Well, I was really only able to find out material about his maternal grandfather, Robert Bryce Greer. His wife had died, but at some point, Paddy must have decided, really, I can't go on. I will go to Barberton and we will live with my father. She took the kids there. And there's a chapter in the book you will remember called Happy Days. And Bryce described that as the only four happy years in his childhood. It's also where he learned a love of gardening. His grandfather was a great storyteller, along with many other members of the family, including his mother, who wrote poetry. And I think that was a stable home. And when Paddy up sticks as she was wont to do after four years and later regretted it. That stable home was gone and they never had another one. Yeah, it's really, it's much tougher, as you say, than I 
ever realised. I, I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned there. You mentioned that he spoke English and that the schools and institutions that he went to, they spoke Afrikaans and he was bullied at those schools. He was quite outspoken, wasn't he, in terms of his views on race. From an early age, he had this absolute sense of us and them and the unfairness of life, even if he couldn't necessarily have understood apartheid as an ideology and as a political system. He knew something was wrong. Yes, that's right. Remember, he grew up in the early years of apartheid. And children, whatever circumstances they're born into, as we know, they can't really intellectualise it. They don't have that perspective because they only know what's going on in their immediate lives. But he used to see the way white people would drive past black people in the rain and not pick them up. That always bothered him. His mother also, it bothered her. And I think he had that growing sense of something not being right, which became a very strong feeling for him later on. And remember, in the institutions, he often spoke in his letters about how the Africans were really his only friends, the only people he could trust, the only people that were kind to him. And he picked up smatterings of their languages, particularly Zulu, Shengan, Bemba, which he, and then later he learned uh, pidgin, pidgin English, uh, working down the mines. He did speak English at home and he really learned a lot of English from being made to recite passages of the Bible to his mother. So he's always grateful for that. But the rest of the time he spoke Afrikaans and he continued to speak it. If we ever met a South African who spoke Afrikaans, he'd often break into it. He never forgot it's interesting that, you know, Dickens was his great hero and so much of his early life is Dickensian, particularly, I have to say, not just the childhood, but the next section, which I thought you described brilliantly in the book, which is going to work in these incredibly dangerous copper mines. So can you tell us a little bit about that underground world that he went into? Well, and may I say, even before that, working on that citrus farm, with all those poisonous chemicals in these stifling packing sheds with these poor African women with nowhere to go, suffering terribly and being treated very appallingly, and then down the mines. And he went there for one reason, to earn good money. On the Copper Belt was where people went across Africa to earn money. And you had to train as a grizzly, uh, someone who lit the explosives to release the copper ore down the mines, and that went on for a long time, far longer than it should have because there were many, many strikes going on. It was just when the rumbles of dissent were beginning to stir and uh, a lot of his relatives up there used to say, in fact, apparently, that they needed to go to God for help. Well, Bryce began to challenge that, even though when he first went there he taught Sunday school because really their only social life growing up had been the church. But it was a dangerous job. And he, there were many incidents, many accidents. His sister described it in an unpublished memoir that she wrote an accident that occurred when she and her mother went up to the to Lewin Shire in northern Rhodesia, called now Zambia. And Bryce himself wrote a very long letter to his mother describing how he lit a chess stick and it went off and he was thrown against a wall and very nearly blown to bits. And in the end, you know, he didn't make quite as much money as he'd hoped. And in the middle of it, he also had to go and do a stint of conscription in southern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, where he didn't earn as much. But he was always grateful for it. And, of course, all these hardships he had as a child, 
working on the citrus farm, working down the mines, as he said, gave him amazing material for his later novels. I mean, he said, if I'd had a nice middle-class upbringing, what what would I have had to write about? I think many, many writers would concur. Let me just ask you, what is a Chesa stick? It's a stick that you plug into the wall of a mine and you light it and then you stand well back and it goes off and then the copper ore is released from the mine shaft. And a grizzly man went up and down in these like little lifts. They were like cages. And whenever anything went wrong in Bryce's life, he would always say, oh, well, darling, never mind. It's just another round on the grizzly bars. He even said that when he was given a terminal diagnosis. I'm interested that you mentioned the unpublished memoir by his older sister, Rosemary, because one of the threads that runs through the book is the relationship between these siblings, but it it's a relationship that's fraught with tension as much as love. And Rosemary obviously didn't like the way he used some elements of real life in his books. She disputed his version of events, didn't she? I think she and her mother certainly were very upset about aspects of The Power of One, which they thought drew a lot on their childhood, and she disputed the claim or the the impressions in that, even though Bryce told them in several letters, it's a novel. Remember, it's a novel. I know you think that that woman in The Power of One is you, mother. It is not. It's a novel. But I think it's so true, and we all know this, that siblings and families have very different perspectives of their childhoods. And remember, Rosemary was far closer to her mother. She spent a lot more time with their mother than Bryce did. She was kept with her, it seems, far more than Bryce was. She also embraced the bosom. She was in the bosom of the church her whole life. She still is, and she's now age 90 and not particularly well, sadly. And so her view of the world was enshrined in that religious framework, which Bryce rejected around the time he was in the mines. And he kind of tried to negotiate a truce, if you like, when they came to see us in 2006, but there was no real meeting of minds. And then later on, (laughs) Rosemary once sent Bryce an email saying, thank you for being the agent of God, because Bryce had funded them, his mother, everybody, it seems, his whole life. Bryce was furious, you know. He said, and he wrote her a letter in 2008 where he tried to address this and said, the agent of God was me. I earned this money that you spent. wasn't provided by God. And then he took it to task about the psychological damage that his mother had imposed on them with her blind embrace of unyielding embrace of religion and the shame and the hell and damnation that was thrust upon him. And he'd get beaten up, he said, if he didn't recite something as she wanted him to. So, you know, it really was difficult. And when she handed us the memoir she'd written that remains unpublished, she handed it to us and said, this is the truth. Well, Bryce read it. And he thought it was a load of rubbish, a lot of it, although I was very grateful for it because it had a lot of very good information about their ancestors and some lovely anecdotes and lovely photographs. 
And I'm sure her family were very thrilled that she wrote it, even though one of them said they thought it was a very sad story because they also realised fully for the first time how tough a childhood they had experienced. Gosh, that's really fascinating. Now, this brings me to something else, Christine, which you you tackle in a very, very tiny anecdote, but which I feel has to be addressed more fully. Those of us who knew and met Bryce, and I was one of them, I'm lucky enough to have interviewed him and known him and had lunch with him a couple of times. We all knew as an advertising man that he had a tendency towards hyperbole. If he was telling a story, it always featured some degree of exaggeration. So did you believe the stories that he told you over the years or did you realise that really you needed to take them, some of them, with a pinch of salt? I think that's the answer. You had to take some of them with a pinch of salt. But when he was speaking to me, I believed most of them. And the letters, I must say, provided evidence that they were in fact true. And some of the media stories that were run in 2012 that were deeply upsetting for Bryce, I think unfairly suggested that he'd made up his whole damn childhood. Well, he didn't. The letters prove that so much of what he said was true. In fact, it was worse than what he said. But, you know, his children were quoted in the media and they've told me that, you know, when they were growing up, they used to refer to some of Bryce's stories as being dad facts. And he did have a tendency to exaggerate. But I do think that I can forgive him for that and I think we should to some extent as well because he was a storyteller and storytellers do embellish stories. They do exa- they do evolve them and I had to be very careful as well when I was writing the book not to embellish them, not to add things that weren't really there. I had to be very disciplined about doing that and I think it was just part of Bryce's persona. All his friends knew it, all his advertising mates, his running mates, mates knew that, but they loved him just the same because how could you not love Bryce? And he never did anything to deliberately hurt anybody, never, never once did he do anything to hurt anybody and he'd be mortified if he ever did hurt somebody. I think what you're saying there is really interesting because I think that my impression of Bryce and the way it worked in his psychology was that he believed himself. So whatever he told you, he really believed it was like that. As a storyteller, he didn't deliberately think, I'm going to exaggerate. It's just that's how he believed it really had happened. But you just referred there to accusations that were made in 2012 that he basically made up his childhood. And you don't mention those accusations in the biography. Why did you leave that out? Well, there are always sensitivities, aren't there, when you point the finger at people. And I was a little bit reluctant to do that. I had hoped to do that. But in the end, I thought, well, I want this to be an authentic story and to be dignified. But there were certain lines that I thought perhaps I shouldn't cross. Maybe I should have. Um, The other thing, just getting back to how Bryce exaggerated, if you ever get an opportunity to listen to the Diana Rich interviews, which you can online from the National Library. Bryce explained why he told stories and why he told lies as a child, and it was to survive. And he, it was a kind of 
provided him with a kind of camouflage so people never knew that he came, as he said to Peter Thompson in that wonderful interview on Talking Heads, that I came from nowhere and from nobody. I think it was a way of survival for him and he just that's, he just kept it going, as you would, because it worked for him. And when you've also said something, if you say it often enough, it almost does feel real, doesn't it? We've all been through that. Tell us now the next big leap in the story is how he gets from that hellish copper mine to being, you know, a big honcho, a big player in the world of advertising. That is a very unlikely leap. Bryce never said he believed in luck, but I used to argue with him about that. And then occasionally he would say he was lucky Courtney. He was lucky Courtney. He was lucky his power of one ever got picked up. He was lucky he came to Australia to follow his wonderful beautiful, sophisticated woman, Benita Solomon, whom he married. And it was Benita who set up an interview with him in the advertising industry. He got the job as a junior copywriter and off he went into the into being a le- becoming a legendary ad man and storyteller, really, because he said every advertisement is a story and what better training could he have for a writer and you have to have a deadline. And I had a natural feeling for it. I mean, I had a natural flair for marketing. I knew pretty soon when I started my adventure travel company. I think he had that kind of flair and he had, he had such a sense of the human condition and he could sell oil to the Arabs, couldn't he? He knew, sure knew how to sell things, whether it was milky bars or mortine or anything else he was promoting in the ad era. And, you know, he won awards all around the world for that. And uh, he did, in those days, the madman era of advertising was a golden time when there was heaps of money being paid for the right stuff and his timing was perfect. It really was and I think it's it's fascinating to realise as you point out in this book that some of his best campaigns endure to this day. I'm thinking of Stop, Revive, Survive. Absolutely and isn't it a wonderful anecdote by Alex Hamill, how Bryce never even told him he had that in his head for about three weeks. And Alex, being the head of George Patterson Bates, was just really panicking when they went into this meeting with this company and uh, with the government and uh, with not a presentation, with nothing written down. And Bryce went to the board and wrote, stop, revive, survive. They won the job. We're still looking at that ad. Absolutely. Well, it, it's so concise and so effective, but I love the sort of theatricality of the way he delivered that to the client, you know, it was and and to his partner who thought, shit, we've, we're going into the room with nothing. So he did have a real sense of drama about him, didn't he? Oh, he did. And if you ever saw him give a lecture, I'm sure you did. He'd leap around the, wo- the room like a grasshopper on steroids, as I write. And he'd throw himself on the floor and he'd cry and he'd laugh and he'd weep and he'd wail. And he, he understood how to entertain people, whether he was giving a talk, having lunch with you, or when he was writing his novels. And he understood, and he was, I think, pilloried for this at times by some of the writing establishment, but he understood if you didn't entertain people when you were writing, they'd put the book down or they wouldn't keep reading. And I think that was something that was very smart of Bryce to kind of understand. It was something I was very conscious of as well 
when I was writing, I knew it was very important that the opening of each chapter and the closing of each chapter made people want to keep reading. I'll give you an example. In Down the Mines, the opening line is something like, Bryce didn't see the explosion coming, which nearly cost him his life. One of the editors didn't like that. She wanted to have something more prosaic, something more pedestrian, something more like a slow kind of lead into the chapter. And I said, hell no, that's staying in. Because when you read there's an explosion that nearly kills someone, you want to keep reading. And you might note my endings always take you to the diving board where you think what's going to happen next. I think I had a natural sort of feeling of how to do that. But I also deliberately wanted people to keep reading. And I learned that from watching Bryce write, from reading his first drafts, from sitting in on countless of his writing courses. I don't well, apologise yes. for that. I mean, you want a book that people are going to read as well as a book that's being well-written and is to the best standard possible. You had an unfair advantage, I have to say, or a ringside seat anyway that made you the most qualified person for this job. I want to ask you about another qualification or, or part of the process because I said before that you were his researcher and you mentioned several times in the book other researchers. And it's not uncommon for writers to have a team of researchers, but can you just describe the kinds of things that you would research for Bryce, the kinds of details that he wanted from you that he wouldn't go and get himself? Bryce pretty much had one full-time researcher and then he'd have other researchers come in at times when he needed them or if they were specialists in something or if they'd written a book themselves about something or, for example, I once went and interviewed a psychiatrist who specialised in treating veterans for PTSD. But to answer your question, he was very big on making sure the timelines were right. And then sometimes he'd want absolute minutiae. I remember when I worked on Four Fires, which I loved doing, Bryce actually said that and Whitethorn, he thought were his two best books. But he had a tree on the side of a slope where the fire was coming and I said, he just wrote it, I think it's a golden ash or something, golden something. And I thought, oh, is it? And so I contacted a tree specialist at the Melbourne Museum in Victoria and she asked what the elevation was and I told her and she said, that tree doesn't grow at that elevation, but this tree does. And I said, oh, goody, gotcha. I went back to Bryce and I said, we have to change the tree. And he was very good. If it was right, he never quibbled. He was never one of those sort of control freaks who had to be right about everything. Um, he was mortified if there was a mistake, like in Solomon's song on the beaches at Gallipoli, they get out on the wrong side of the boat. In one book, they mentioned, he mentioned a Hasselblad. It wasn't invented then. Mm. He was very meticulous about that, even though when he wrote a first draft, and Graham, uh, John Lacare, I've discovered, did this too, and I did it myself, you just start kind of almost vomit it all out, you pour it all out, but then you go back and you fill in the detail. That's where the hard work comes for any writer, and that's what Bryce did. Um, and sometimes it was not too difficult, like Whitethorn, where he was writing about his own life. That book just poured out of him, hard it needed, hard it needed any work. But when he was sick and writing Jack of Diamonds, that book was all over the place. It wasn't his best writing, although I liked it very much. He had the timelines all over the place. Had to rewrite five chapters a few months before he died. And he had a lot of help from wonderful editors like Rachel Scully, who worked on my book. 
who kind of knocked it into shape in the end. Although, amazingly, the prologue he wrote without any help for Jack of Diamonds is one of the best things he ever wrote. And I think the only time, we're jumping forward here because I want to go backwards in a moment, but I think the only time in his writing life of producing whatever it is, 21 bestsellers in 23 years, he only had writer's block once, which was when he was writing Danny Dunn. Yes, that's the only time I ever saw it. I mean, he was pretty exasperated with Jack of Diamonds. I actually told him not to finish it. He was so sick. He was so tired. It's dreadful watching him drag himself into that desk each day. But Danny Dunn was serious and it really, really shocked him and he was very disturbed by it and almost panicked because he just stared at the screen for about three weeks and he rang up Bob Sessions and he said, I can't write a word. Just nothing's coming out. I've lost interest in the book. I'm sorry. I just don't know if I can complete it on time. But he did. But he did, and it's a good book. His great mate, um, Alex Hamill, who'd grown up in Balmain, really helped a lot with that and I think helped him dig himself out of the hole. And he just took a break. Let's go back to the writing of The Power of One because if any book was ever going to pour out of him, it was that one, wasn't it? So tell us about the writing of The Power of One because obviously that book, you know, it it just bursts onto the scene and it seems like it kind of came out of nowhere, but of course it didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of lived experience and he may have written it fast, but then there was the process of getting it born into the world, which you tell in, in a way that makes it so exciting in terms of, you know, finding a publisher who wants it and then everybody wants it. Truly an extraordinary story. And it's really hard to know when he first thought about that book. I really don't know. But remember, from a small child, he used to tell all his family, I'm going to be an author one day. And what's more, I'm going to become a world famous one. And he said in a lovely story that is published in The Silver Moon, well, when I sat down and wrote my first book, I just thought, well, I'd write about what I knew growing up in Africa. But he was 52 when he sat down to write it. And it did just pour out of him. But he always said... He thought it was only going to be a practice book. I don't know if he really meant that. I think he knew it was a bloody good book. However, he knew nothing about the publishing industry and he always said he was very lucky that it was picked up. He said many books just as good or better have been missed. But I think talking to a few friends, discovering the word literary agent, whatever that meant, Jill Hickson and then the team in London, America, which gave birth to that being auctioned, And just that the readers then loved it so much and it was released, you know, worldwide, which none of his other books ever were. Some were were released later in other markets like in South Africa and Canada, but only Tandia was published again in America. But that book just hit the spot. And I don't know if you've often found, but some writers, when they write their first book, and maybe this will be true of mine, it's their best book. You know, think (laughs) of Albert Facey, think of The Horse Whisperer. It's kind of, they have a freshness to them, a lack of consciousness almost, and a radiance that The Power of One still has. Although he didn't think it was his best book, he thought White White Thorn and Four Fires were his best books. I personally think White Thorn was his best book. I'm curious, you mentioned there which books were published in America. 
And I don't understand this. You say at one stage that his books were published in China, and I wondered whether for the Chinese market some of the sex scenes were censored because they are very prudish about sex. But why wasn't he a huge hit in America like Alex Haley or Wilbur Smith? Someone like Lee Child, as you know, who went to live there. I think Bryce believed the reason he wasn't because he didn't live there. He said, if I'd gone to the States, to New York or L.A., I could have really worked the room and become more popular there. He also wondered if it wasn't because a lot of the material was set around Australian themes, which to the rest of the world, you know, we are pretty sort of remote and distant and not really in their mind. Um, He had thought of writing a book set in the American South, which he thought would have been able to be published in America. But, you know, he never wanted to leave Australia. He loved Australia. He felt like it was home from the moment he stepped ashore at Circular Quay. And um, it is a pity, though. I mean, and the only reason books were published in other markets were really because overseas agents contacted him and asked, you know, to sell the rights or Penguin would occasionally sell them. He's done very well in South Africa. Apparently, The Power of One is still one of their most popular books and it's still studied in schools, I'm told. We should remind the listener that he actually, I mean, the other thing that's remarkable really is that he wrote The Power of One after work. So he would do a full day's work in advertising and then he would go home and apply what he called bum glue and sit there for hours and hours. And obviously he had the stamina to work through the night. At what point did he leave advertising to become a writer full time? Well, remember, I would add, he also wrote The Power of One when he had a dangerously ill son, you know, a son who was so ill. He'd often have to rush hospital with him if dear Damon had another bleed from his haemophilia. Bryce didn't need a lot of sleep as I said a bit like Margaret Thatcher he could get by with about four and a half hours sleep but you know he he used to say to people who'd say oh Bryce I'm writing a book and he'd say oh that's wonderful how long have you been doing it and they'd say oh about you know five years but you know I'm really busy the kids my job and he'd say what's wrong with you get up earlier (laughs) you know and I certainly got up early to finish this book so I know what that's all about but he had an incredible work ethic and as anyone who's written a book knows it is like giving birth to a child kind of won't let you go it 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 won't let you sleep it wakes you up in the night and until it's done it's not done and it takes every drop of blood out of you. So did he did he quit advertising after a certain number of books and say, okay, right, that's it. Now I know that I can have a career as a writer. He gave up advertising when he had enough money to be able to meet his mortgage needs of his family. And he promised Benita that if he didn't make a, a go of writing, he would in fact stay on in advertising. I think he gave himself three years, didn't he, to make a success of it? Yes, that's right. And remember, I think because it started so late, He had so many books rattling around in his head. He was a man in a hurry, and even before he passed away, and I said, darling, if you had more time, what would you like to do? He looked a bit sheepish and said, oh, I'd probably write another book. He had five more he wanted to write. Amazing. Now, his sales figures were absolutely prodigious. I think we're talking about sales figures of around 200,000 copies, would that be right? Yes, 200, 220, 230, something in that order, which is extraordinary in the small Australian and New Zealand market. And, of course, he brought all of that experience and expertise from advertising, not so much to the writing, but 
very much ahead of his time in his thinking about how books should be distributed, where they should be available for sale, that they should be available in supermarkets and in places that were not traditional. He was interested in the marketing. He was interested in the book cover. Every aspect of the production of the book was part of the process and part of the whole well, he, he was involved from woe to go in a way that was very unusual. And it's also unusual, I suppose, because of his sales, that his publisher allowed him to have so much say and influence. Because I've talked to a lot of writers who say, I'm not consulted about the cover. I don't get to have any say about any of those things. Yes. Well, I must say, I learned from Bryce and I was hands on with every aspect of Bryce Courtney's storyteller. I think one reason that he got such a free run with the publisher was firstly, he sold so many books they thought he must know something. And secondly, that often what what he said about marketing books made so much sense to them that they thought, well, let's give it a try. And also there was the funds, because he sold so many, to invest in the marketing. I mean, whether it was sales on yachts on Sydney Harbour or skywriting in the sky, um, he did always feel a little bit conflicted about wanting books to be in petrol stations, supermarkets and, you know, Big W and Kmart. He wanted books to be accessible and affordable, but he also greatly respected the independent bookstores. He understood that this strategy really probably impacted on them, although, although they loved Bryce and he went to every single bookstore in town, anywhere he could find, to sign books for them. And I've tried to do the same. But he did change the face of publishing. I think they still need to learn a bit more. I think, sadly, a lot of the big, the small independent publishers, some of them, as we know, have been taken up by the big publishers. And it's very sad, I think, that sometimes, as we all know in every business, the bean counters and the lawyers are kind of calling a lot of the shots. And it's, I think often publishers today take quite a cynical view of their authors. And it's certainly not easy to make a living out of being a writer. I think the average earnings currently of an Australian author are somewhere around $12,000 a year. It is absolutely unsustainable. Of course, that makes the other element of, you know, we talked about the beauty pageant and the sort of auction for the first book, which was obviously thrilling. But then there was another contest further on in his career when he decided to leave his publisher and there was this sort of free-for-all of people wooing him. And I love the details that you bring to that story of how he ended up with Penguin and the care and attention that they brought to the process of attracting him. Can you just perhaps go over that a little bit? Bryce was very much a people person and he trusted his instincts. And when he was encouraged to jump, he thought, All I, well, first I'll just meet the people and see if I like them, if we're going to get along. He did like them and they were also quite cunning, you know. They made sure that his favourite wine was on the table at lunch and his, they went to his favourite restaurant and they kind of ticked those boxes. I think it's very telling, you know, in terms of that sort of publishing tribe or family that when he was auditioning those various publishers, he wanted to meet the entire team. He didn't just want to meet the boss or the sort of publisher, sort of VIP people. He wanted to meet the people who were going to be in the warehouse packing the books. You know, I think that that idea that he wanted the total package, he wanted to know how the whole system was going to work, was very telling. Um, there's something that I, I wanted to ask you about 
I remember hearing this as a story. I think it's true, but maybe maybe it's a myth. I know that he was quite hurt by the literary snobbery of writers' festivals back in those times, which, it has to be said, were not generous and not inclusive of so-called writers of commercial, so-called commercial fiction. And I know that many writers like Bryce long for invitations to be on those stages. So finally, he got an invitation to the Melbourne Writers' Festival. And I'm told that there was a particular literary critic on the panel that Bryce was invited to appear on, who when Bryce offered him his hand to shake his hand, this person did not shake his hand, which I think is just the most terrible bad manners and rudeness and reflects appallingly on that person. Do you think that he did really care about being accepted by the literati and did he care about literary snobbery? I think he cared about it a lot more than he admitted. I think it did hurt him a lot more than he admitted, even though he'd shrug it off. When you've sold that many books and people keep buying your books and you're writing your best and you're writing flat out for seven months a year till you nearly drop, you would want some acknowledgement from your peers, from the industry. I mean, he was given the Lloyd O'Neill Award by the Australian Book Publishers Association, Book Industry Awards people posthumously. You know, why didn't they give it to him when he was alive? But, you know, he also said publicly what he thought about the literati glitterati. Maybe that got up their noses and they thought, well, buggy, you know, we won't invite you. And, you know, not everybody felt like that. But in the end, what mattered to him and what matters to me about my book is what the readers are saying. I wanted to ask you about one particular book where he broke his rule, which was basically lots of people wrote to him and suggested stories to him that they thought he should tell. And he always very politely rejected those. But there was one exception, and that was the story of Jessica. What was it about Jessica's story that resonated with him and that made him decide to take on the story someone told him to write? I think it was just such a remarkable story you couldn't walk away from. And remember, it was one of the first stories of fiction, really, if you like, about Indigenous communities. And he always thought that Indigenous communities had been left out of a lot of Australian literature. And he thought, and it was such a heartbreaking story, and he liked the family very much and he thought he could work with them. And he thought they would let him go and write it, which they did. They left him alone. Thank God they liked the book a lot. And many readers still tell me it's their favourite book. My girlfriend, Stacey, says she's read it, you know, 25 times. Can you believe it? She always has a copy by her bedside table. And I think that's a very special book because it's based on a true story. And it, again, has a special quality about it because it was based on something that actually happened. But he did he did write another book about a, a war hero, a war, fellow, a war veteran, and... The family weren't that wrapped in it and it made him feel very guarded about doing it again. Just remind listeners what the story of Jessica is that makes it so compelling. Well, it's a heartbreaking story of a, of, of a woman uh, in the country in the Riverina who falls in love. She's not accepted. She has a child that's given away, really taken from her. Her great love dies in action in the war. She's... She's outcast. 
and she dies a horrible death from snake bite. Gosh, yes, that's pretty stark, isn't it? Yes, it doesn't get much worse than that. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Okay, let's switch to a happier subject. I mentioned before that you were Bryce's researcher, you were his publicist, and then, of course, we go from research to romance. He's divorced amicably from Benita. You have a working relationship and he starts to make overtures to you. You're not sure about them at all. You're very, very unsure at the beginning of this courtship. Could you just tell my favourite story about the two of you, which I think shows that you really were a perfect match, which is the story of the gifts that you exchange early on? Wasn't that amazing? I mean, yes, I absolutely never felt the slightest romantic inclination towards Bryce in the least. And, you know, I was used to working with very charismatic people, whether they were explorers, mountaineers, and they were pretty sexy. But, you know, you're working, aren't you? And... Um, you don't want to cross those lines. <laughs> if you do, you get into all sorts of trouble. Anyway, he eventually was a man who was used to getting his own way, knew how, was very, very good at, at knew how to entice a woman, you know. He was so romantic and so kind and generous and funny. Anyway, I lobbed up at Yarramalong on Christmas Day 2012 with my cat Cardamon, the Burmese, and... I handed Bryce a little package and I said, this is just a little gift for you. And Bryce opened the package and out came to his palm of his hand a golden cowrie shell, which is a very rare kind of shell that I had bought off a little native child in the Morale Sound in the Solomon Islands many years earlier. And I thought, what do you give a man who has everything? So I thought this was sort of a beautiful shell. And Bryce just looked in complete wonderment and he handed me a package. I tore off the string, opened up the package and there was a golden cowrie shell. I mean, really, you'd have a better chance of winning the lottery, wouldn't you? And he said, well, kid, this is a sure sign. We're going to do just fine. <laughs> and he was right. He was obviously very generous, whether he was wooing people or not. Philanthropy, it was important to him. What were the causes that he supported? I think because Bryce had had such a tough time, he always saw the other side of the world and people that never had a kick of the football. And he felt a great responsibility to give back. And he was the most generous person. I mean, it's a miracle, honestly, he didn't end up with nothing. He helped so many people with deposits for houses and helped their kids with education and goodness knows what, helped all the family. He was very interested in supporting charities to do with issues like medically acquired conditions such as HIV AIDS, which sadly Damon acquired from having contaminated blood. So he supported the Cure the Future Foundation headed by Professor John Rusco. He was their first patron. Mental health was something that was very close to his heart. And I realised even more when I read the letters that it was because of his mother's mental health problems, probably, that the, you know, that the seed was sown, and also the environment and habitat loss and climate change. He was just so shocked when Tim Flannery, Flannery explained to him that Australia loses more species than any continent. So he supported a lot of charities. He supported a little wombat charity near us in Yarramalong. He liked giving funds to organisations where he knew the money got there. He once supported a woman who 
built a house in Canberra for homeless youth, a pensioner who did that. He, he really, he never said no. He was always giving characters to be auctioned at charity events. He gave away thousands of books each year. It, he, thought, he called it the gift of giving and it was just his most endearing quality. He almost gave too much sometimes though, you know. Sometimes I'd sort of think that he was not buying love but he'd almost give too much, you know, and sometimes people with low self-esteem or whatever, they give too much. He gave too much of himself to his writing, to everything. I've just sort of thought of that. And he never left enough for Bryce. I mean, Bryce really wore himself out in the end mm. and perhaps made himself a bit more vulnerable to getting that terrible cancer that killed him. We all wished he looked after himself a bit more, even though he was always fit. You know, he he really was a workaholic. He did have this sort of monomania about writing. He was hardwired to do that. And it was almost like an addiction in the end, I thought. I wished he had stopped and taken a year or two off. But he always felt the wind up his back, I think. Like anyone who's come from the depression and the war and tough times, our parents were all like that, weren't they? They, they never forgot how hard it could be. And I think everything about Bryce was extreme. The stamina and the work ethic, the pushing himself as a runner, the generosity push to extremes. I mean, everything about him was 150%. Can I ask you, I didn't get a sense of this from your book and I was curious about it. What were his politics? Bryce was someone that was more interested in the individual rather than the party. I mean, he'd worked on political campaigns for the Liberal Party and the Labor Party. When I first met him, I think he was more of a Liberal voter, to be honest. But he, I have to say, wasn't a, he respected him as a statesman, but he wasn't a great fan of John Howard. The thing that really made him leave the, the more conservative side of politics, if you like, was their lack of commitment to the environment and and the situation he saw unfolding in Australia. And so he became a great supporter of Bob Brown. He spoke once, I remember, we went down to Hobart, gave a wonderful talk at a fundraiser for Bob. Bob Brown very kindly came with his partner to Bryce's service. And I think the environment became the key issue for Bryce politically. He was, he absolutely abhorred far right-wing politics, you know, that were full of anti-Semitism, race wars, and anti-women. You know, he always felt that none of the parties did enough for women. He always thought that women bringing up children or grandchildren or single fathers, you know, they were the ones that were always left behind and that they were always the real heroes who should be getting the AMs, the OAM and every other M, (laughs) not the well-known people like him who got one. (laughs) <laughs> and deserve to get one. but you I know. wanted to ask you that. In fact, I think that might be my final question. Um, I thought this was quite paradoxical. You do say in the book that he loved fame. He loved being recognised. He loved being asked for autographs wherever he was by fans. He never turned anyone down wherever he was. But he also said in a later interview that he hated the word celebrity. How could he dislike the word celebrity and enjoy fame as much as he did? Look, he was unapologetic about his fame and fortune. He'd worked very hard for it. He said, what's the point of writing a book if nobody's going to read it? And he didn't believe in the starving writer in the garret. 
At the same time, he really cherished being an ordinary person, being seen as an ordinary down-to-earth bloke. He connected with real people, with ordinary people, in a way that someone like Dick Smith does very much. Bryce could tell you what real people have for breakfast. And in his own life, he was a very private person who lived quietly. He didn't have friends and celebrities. He didn't go to high-flying parties and that very much. Didn't like that. Um, but I think in other ways, all that acknowledgement of being recognised in that was kind of perhaps something to do with his own self-esteem of not being acknowledged as a child. He must have felt invisible as a child, like he didn't really exist. So he could never get enough of that. He could never get enough love. I think, you know, no one could give Bryce the amount of love he truly needed. It was very sad, really, but it was just understandable. But in other ways, don't feel sorry for Bryce. He never wanted anybody to feel sorry for him. He thought he'd had a remarkable life, a blessed life, a happy life. And he was so much fun. And he wasn't intrinsically a very happy person to be around. He wasn't a depressive. He could have been, could have been an alcoholic like many of his relatives were. He was someone who loved every moment of life. And he was just a joy to be around. And he laughed all the time. I mean, he was just such a gorgeous human being as anyone who knew him experienced. I keep thinking, Christine, that given his flair for marketing and his understanding of how to reach people, I wonder, I think that he would have loved social media. Do you think he would have loved social media or do you think he would have felt ambivalent about how distracting it has become? Oh, I think he would have understood the marketing potential of it but he would have got someone else to do all the posts uh, like he did when he was alive. He would have hated all that. And he was also intrinsically such a private person. I don't think he would have liked the implications of it or the threats that it poses and the distraction that it causes. I mean, I think it stops people reading books. If you're spending seven or eight hours a day watching your phone, how much time do you have to read a book? Driven, generous and given to extravagant hyperbole, Courtney was a fascinating man who had many more facets to his personality than his readers might suspect, which is what makes this biography rewarding in many unexpected ways. I can't imagine a wife writing more tenderly about her husband. I probably would have left out some of the more personal details of their courtship and domestic life, such as his generous gift-giving and urgings to go shopping. He liked strong women, but was also an unreconstructed traditional male who had no time for political correctness and was old-fashioned in his demonstrations of love and largesse. He never managed to cure Christine of her fear of snakes, though. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. Don't forget to leave us a review if you can. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipewolf Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to its traditional owners. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. This episode of Life Sentences was produced with a grant from Create New South Wales, and I would like to acknowledge their generous support.